Hello, friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern, or catch the encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week. Later in the show, my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, joins me to discuss the sad reality of Britney Spears and how even wealth and fame don't save women from abortion pressure. But first, with marriage in decline, the Knights of Columbus are out with a new video series called Into the Breach. We learn all about it from Damien O'Connor with the Knights of Columbus. The Senior Director of Evangelization and Faith Formation for the Fraternal Mission Department of the Knights of Columbus. And he's here with us to discuss the Knights' new video series called Into the Breach, The Mission of the Family, which was created to strengthen Catholic marriages and families, but we're going to hear more from Damien on the topic. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be with you. Our goal is to proclaim and share the the truth and beauty of the Catholic vision of family life. And we're also trying to, we're seeking to inspire and prepare people that watch these videos to live this vision in the modern world. It's a collection of uh, five videos, Mm -hmm. and each of them uh, has a powerful personal story of a Catholic couple who's lived the theme of that episode. And there's also some featured experts in, in each episode. And to be to be honest with you, we modeled it after our original Into the Breach series, which was a 12-part series. Each episode is 10 to 12 minutes long, and it's meant to be very inspiring. And then there's also a study guide that goes along with that, where you can go deeper into that particular topic. And why did you feel that this was needed at this particular time? To be honest, and someone said this years ago, and I, I wish it was my quote, but they said, the Knights of Columbus continues to become whom God has called us to be. In other words, we really feel, to be honest with you, that God is calling us to create this series now because it's it's needed in the world today. There's there's just so many people hungering to have successful marriages and families, but they're struggling to, to form and build and maintain them. Um, Tamian, the Knights of Columbus is a very masculine organization, right? It's the Knights of Columbus, not the Dames of Columbus. Why why the focus on family, specifically from a male perspective? Well, we've always been focused on the family, even from our beginning and protecting of the family. But we're at a point now where we realize that we really, we, we have over 16,000 councils worldwide, over 2 million members. And imagine if we really teach our men and really help them to live their faith to the best of their ability, specifically in their families, we believe that that change literally could change the culture if, if, if our men were doing that. And we're also creating, the series is not just for our, our nights, it's for anyone, and it's specifically families as well. Like you could easily watch this with your wife and with your children um, to really help them understand the true vision of, of, of marriage. And the, um, I know that the release date coincided with the Feast of the Archangels, or will coincide. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's correct. It's also the anniversary of uh, Bishop Olmsted's um, when he promulgated uh, the Into the Breach, the original apostolic exhortation into the breach. Uh, so we, tr- we try to coordinate all that because he's what really inspired the beginning of this whole process with that original uh, exhortation. So this, these are videos that will be available online for, for couples and families to watch? Mm-hmm. 
They are right now. It's kofc.org forward slash mission of the family. And I suppose that there's no cost for the people who want to watch. There's no cost at all. And you can uh, download the videos if you'd like. There's also the, as I said, the study guide. Uh, again, it's, it's just to help couples who I think many couples really want to have, of course, want to have a successful marriage. But uh, unlike in the past times, the culture around us isn't supportive of that. And it's sometimes hostile uh, towards sacramental marriage. And so if I may, I, if, if I was to sum it up in one word, it's to help couples to be intentional about how they they live their marriage because society's not going to provide that for them. They're not, it's, they're not providing it for myself and my, and my wife. We have to be intentional about how we live our faith. And you'll see in the series, there's lots of topics. Some of them are, are difficult to deal with, but they're, they're real. And that's what couples go through and families go through. Um, so how do you deal with that? Or how do you celebrate that depending on what the topic is? And so we try to help them to go much deeper into understanding that uh, and embracing that for their own marriages. You make a really good. You just made a very good point that um, the the model that we see of marriage reflected toward back to us in the culture is very it's it's very um, deficient, sometimes even malignant, mm-hmm. uh, in the way that if you're just um, if you're just sort of existing in the culture, there's very little to catch hold of, right? I started a mm-hmm. woman's reading group. Um, we just had our first session and, and last week, and the topic was friendship in marriage, like how marriage can be mm. a friendship. And it was, we had some interesting readings about it. And it was, it was really wonderful watching these women's eyes light up with, with, um, with the understanding that marriage can be so much more than what the culture is offering us. For instance, it can be a friendship, you know, it can be a place of healing and, and redemption. It, it can be a place where we're caring for each other's souls, right? A husband and wife know that the other person is a soul and that that soul is also our responsibility, making sure that we both get to heaven together. I wonder if those are some of the themes that, in a way, are being touched on in, in Into the Breach. Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. And you, you're saying some really important points. And as a former teacher, I can help, but as we are creating this series, we assume nothing. And I think we, you and I could talk about this topic and probably others at length because, well, we've either grown up in the faith or we study the faith now, but so many people don't know the, the basics. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I don't, I don't claim we should dumb it down. I think we need to start meeting people where they're at. They simply aren't aware of much of what it takes to be friendship and marriage, of what it takes to be supportive and to die unto yourself. These are concepts they, they just never heard of, mm-hmm. and they certainly don't see it in society. So rather than being negative about that, we're trying to say, okay, well, let's, let's teach them. Let's show them. Mm-hmm. Here's what it is. Here's an example of that. Uh, and then again, to go deeper, God willing, if they can get into a small group study and use our study guide. It's, but I, I really think people aren't even aware of a lot of this. I'll, I'll tell my team all the time when we're trying to create maybe a new product or something for the night. I said, all of us in this room, just because we can hang out together and we seem normal, quote unquote, we're not, we don't represent the average people, Catholics in society now. Mm-hmm. And so we have to meet them where they're at. It's, and it's vitally important. You know, listening to you, I'm thinking, uh, I've had a meeting with a, with a younger woman a couple of days ago or yesterday, I think. And she wants to also start in reading, a reading group. And these are all married younger women with young children. And, mm-hmm. and I was thinking this would be perfect for a reading group scenario, right? Like you watch the video perhaps on your own and then you can, you can come and talk it over with, with uh, other couples or, or if it's a friends, women friends or men friends. What do you think? 
I would agree with that 100. percent And you'll find if you watch the the episodes, and while I'm obviously biased, but when you watch the episode, you can't help but at the end of it to want to talk about it mm-hmm. because it's it, it's meant to um, inspire you. It's meant to even maybe hit a nerve or two. And it, you, most people that will say that, that they desire to now talk with someone else about it. So it really kind of sets up um, what is hopefully a deeper conversation uh, and discussion with the sm- in a small group setting. My, my find, what I find is that people are very, very hungry to, to learn about noble things and how their marriage can be more noble and can be more can be a place where where they flourish and everyone in the house flourishes with them right right everything in in the everyone in the home and and I do think that many people even though they might not have like you say the language to express it or haven't had the formation they can see that it's it's very deficient the marriage culture is a very deficient culture right now in in the modern world where Couples are like the male and the, the husband and the wife are almost like in competition with each other inside this, inside the marriage. I find that a lot. And, and they know, even though they might not have the formation, they know that that can't be right, right? Because that's not how they went into marriage. They didn't go into the marriage to compete with each other. They went in because they were in love. And now mm. what happened? Exactly. And it's so funny how I actually think that uh, a sac- living a sacramental marriage is is simpler than we realize. I think if you're going by what society says and what you just refer to this competition and um, we're just making things up as we go along, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so many couples saying there's got to be something more. There mm-hmm. has to be. And the, the answer is, well, his name is Jesus Christ. And if he's not the center of my marriage and speaking just for my wife and I, then we're lost. And, we're, and it creates all kinds of tension because it's about us. Mm-hmm. And it's not supposed to be about me figuring it all out or my wife figuring it out. It's, it's Christ is our, is our center. He's our foundation. And if you don't mind me saying it, it's, it's funny to me that somewhere along the way, um, my question would be, when did Jesus stop being enough? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We mm-hmm. do all these other things. And yet if we just focus on him and growing closer to him, especially through our marriage and praying together and being intentional about that, it radically changes our, our marriage for the better. But somewhere along the way in society, we said, he's, he's not enough. We have to do all these other things around the periphery, and maybe we'll get to him. That You know, that's nice. He's there. And it's quite the opposite. He's, what I, he's stopped being enough. What I find, too, is that people might, they think that they have to look for something more esoteric and, and more mm. spectacular than Jesus. Right? right? Like, to, oh, that's what I grew up with, and that's, you know. That's what I was told was going to work out for me. But no, there must be some mm-hmm. some other deeper, more spectacular, more esoteric, harder to find solution. And and meanwhile, the the ease and and the grace is right in front of you. But it's it's so much it's so much there, and it's so much part of your daily life that you've lost sight of it as 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 the ultimate solution to this problem of mm-hmm. of the darkness of life. Right, the darkness that's inside of us, the darkness that's all around us and, and the people that the very people that we live with, right? We're all fallen creatures and, and the right. solutions right at our fingertips. And we're looking for spectacular knowledge somewhere else. Like if we dig deep enough in the internet, something's going to, something's going to click. That's right. We go on Dr. Google and we're going to find all the answers to whatever our ailments are, or issues that we're dealing with. And, um, and we're tempted to do that, but oftentimes God speaks to us, as you know, in a, in a whisper. 
I think God is very simple. I think we complicate the heck out of him. Mm -hmm. I do. I I think he's right there in front of us. And years ago, I had a friend of mine. um, He was, he misspoke when he said to me, he goes, gosh, you're such a, you have such a strong faith life and it's incredible. And I'll never have that. And I said, boy, you're missing the whole point. You may think that I have that. The truth is I realize that I'm powerless without God. Mm -hmm. And so I need to surrender myself and my wife and my children as much as i want to fix and control things especially as a man uh i i can't and i'm powerless without him so therefore i am a person of prayer i do surrender everything to him doesn't mean i i'm comfortable with it because i want to be in control but i i can't mm-hmm. um so my if if i have a strong prayer life and it's not as strong as i'd like it to be but if i do it's because i know i'm powerless without god and at the nights we, we we're trying to show that and through this series, and our Supreme Knight Patrick Kelly could not have a clearer vision of how important this is. He is supporting this 100%, and he wants our men to grow in their faith, to be formed in the faith, and, me, to, and to live that. Let me read a, a quote from him, because sure, sure. I have it here. It's very pretty. He said, I'm excited about the new Into the Breach, the Mission of the Family video series, because a relationship with Christ is the greatest gift we can offer to the next generation. The mission of the family can help Catholics grow in their faith, increase their understanding of the nature and purpose of marriage, and strengthen and inspire them in living out their vocations as spouses and parents. I think that's yeah, very, beautiful. very beautiful because there's that there's that idea of vocation, um, and that has been that's lost generally in in the culture. And as Catholics, if we, I think if we see ourselves as as in, that's our vocation to be a wife, in my case, a husband in yours, um, and a parent, a mother or a father, that that can energize us and, and fill us with with um, that ennobling desire, right? To be, to, to, to grow and, and reach for perfection through the grace of God, of course. Amen. Yeah, it, it is a vocation, obviously. And I remember learning this in, during our pre-Cana classes and our pre-Cana retreats just 26 years ago or 27 years ago. And I remember learning for the first time that my wife and I, and it scared the heck out of me, we are the living sacrament, how oh, yes. we live our marriage. <laughs> it, it's not the ring that I wear or some, you know, some sort of symbol. We are the sign. It's us. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm not ready for this. I, <laughs> and... Uh, but it's true. And then if, once you embrace that and realize, gosh, my family could really impact beyond our walls here. We can impact society. And then I've come to learn salvation history was changed forever by a family mm-hmm. that had nowhere near the resources we have. You know, it's, it's amazing to think about all those sacrifices we make in our marriages and with our kids and those sleepless nights and all those things people don't see. Um, well, God sees that. And that has an impact spiritually, not just on us, but on people well beyond the walls of our home, you know, and how we're trying to live our faith. You make you, you make such a good point, because if we stop and think of the repercussions, right, of, of all our little acts, as, how, as they add up over the decades of our lives and the decades of our marriage, of our marriages, and it's, it's sobering, right? All the ways, all oh, the little yeah. ways that we failed, and all the ways that we've succeeded, they have tremendous repercussions that we will never, we will never understand until until we're until we're standing in heaven. Hopefully, <laughs> we're in the next yeah. life, but we we can't. They're they're immeasurable, right? The the way that that chain un, unfolds. Mm, exactly. I we have 
a few of our children have special needs, but they also have photographic memories. So they, they will remind us of ways in which my wife and I made mistakes. It could be 15 years ago. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's, as you said, very hard. sobering, you know. <laughs> my husband and I will be married 30 years in December. And, and we have five children and they're pretty, they're pretty spread out in age. And we always hmm. say, oh, if we'd only had the marriage that we, that we had, 10 years in or 15 years in with the first children, like there is, there's like, um, there's a sadness, right? To say, well, we were growing in faith. We were growing in our vocations and, and I wish we could have modeled better and, and given more. Um, but I guess every day is a new beginning and now we can model for our adult. We can, we can show to our adults. We have two adult children that are married and, mm -hmm. you know, and we concentrate on that. We say, you know, we made mistakes, but, We can talk frankly about them and say, this is, this is how your father and I, you know, grew and held on to God's, to Jesus's hands and, and let him pull us up, you know, pull us up into a better, more beautiful, more flourishing marriage. Amen. And you just said something that I think is important for those that are listening to this. And it's in, it's actually in one of the episodes, uh, you'll hear about the, the reality and the fact that many of us think that you just kind of mentioned it. Maybe I, I, I messed up, I messed up here or I, we should have worked harder there and, or worse, it's too late for me to even begin. And one of the episodes talks about that. It's never too late. It's absolutely never too late to start working on your, whether it's your marriage or if you have adult children, it's never too late. You know, we simply have to look at scripture. How often did God call someone who was, uh, shall we say, of a seasoned age to begin a ministry? That's and it, true. it impacted not only the world, it impacted history. But we often, and I think that's the evil one getting into our head saying, oh, it's too late. You missed up. You messed up. And it's not too late. Never those too of late. us, That's those not... of us who had the, the great fortune, like I did, to have parents who were married very long until my father died mm -hmm. last year, fifty six years. My parents, mm -hmm. I was, oh, wow. I was able to to see the the changes in their marriage as they matured and as they came closer to God and were able to love each other better by using the grace of God, no, to to love the other. And that's mm -hmm. a very beautiful experience. And I and I love that that you say that there's no there's no time date on that. There's no timestamp, right? If if you achieve a gorgeous marriage filled with the grace of God at the after 50 years of marriage, well that's just wonderful. That's what God <laughs> that's what God intended for you. Amen. And my father, he passed away 2015, I guess, and he he had a, a line and I, I would not claim my parents had a perfect marriage, not by any stretch, but he used to say to me when I was I used to complain about my students when I first started teaching. I really didn't know what I was doing, to be honest, back then. And I, I was just struggling. And he said, Damien, you may be the only person in any given day through which someone will encounter Christ. Oh, period. beautiful. So it changed, literally changed my life and how I live every day. Mm -hmm. I struggle with this constantly, obviously, but, and also how we live our marriage. We have to assume we may be the only marriage, uh, people, a married couple rather, in the area or whatever, however I want to Uh, perceive it in my head, that's going to really emulate Christ for others. Mm -hmm. It's not true that it's just us, but that's how we have to think. That's how intentional we have to be. And it really does impact others. And the fact that I do not feel qualified is completely irrelevant, completely irrelevant, because none of us are really qualified when you think about it. Well, that, But, also takes, um, yeah. that also takes that, that weight off your shoulders of saying, well, I have to do it perfectly. You don't have to do it perfectly, right? Because, no. because God is using imperfect instruments to do perfect things. So that's, that's who we are. We're imperfect instruments. But, but if we realize ourselves, right? We've, I think that's what you're saying. We realize that we are ourselves messengers um, of God's purpose or en enabling God's purpose or, or carrying it out. Even if, we, 
even if we mess up a million a million ways, <laughs> backwards and sure. forwards, we're still carrying out his purpose. If we can, if we can, if we can connect, right? If we can connect to that That's great right. to that great idea and and, and, and I really think, I channel think, him. I think we wanted to. It's so silly to think about it now. We wanted to have a perfect marriage, and we were engaged in this and that, and everything was wonderful. And I mentioned two of our kids that have special needs. Well, when that came along, well, that wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. That's not perfection. That's that's quite the contrary. We it's not what we expected, and yet they're beautiful gifts from God. Absolutely beautiful gifts from God. And you know, it, we have to understand that in in marriage, these things are going to happen, and sometimes. We have to mourn what we thought what was going to happen in our marriage so that we can then see the beautiful gift that God is giving us. Mm-hmm. But we get these perceptions in our head or these parameters that we create, not God. We create them. And then we, we're surprised when something different happens. But sometimes it's a, it is a gift from God, even suffering, which is, is a tough, I know, obviously a tough topic. And even our mistakes, right, Damien? I feel sometimes mm-hmm. that, that God has been very kind to me when he has allowed me to make terrible mistakes. <laughs> I'm, mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes me a few years to, to understand but I, but I do feel that even even those mistakes that I have made have allowed me to understand God's mercy and and in and in understanding that to grow into someone who's more worthy of God's mercy. That's right. And in a sacramental marriage, I'm going to screw up a lot, but I have to understand that we also have the gift of confession. We have to participate in that as often as we can. That's part of marriage. So we could go as a family. To, to confession, you know, we could, you know, to go together, we can, or my wife and I can go together. And it's a beautiful thing, obviously, but to go together takes it to a whole other level. It shows back to the word intentional. It's an intentionality about that sacrament. It's so important that we're going to either go as a couple or as a family. And that has a massive impact um, on, on the family. It really does um, when you're that intentional. This morning, my husband and I went to adoration together and we sat there just a few feet away from from our lord in in the sacrament mm-hmm. and and i was thinking to myself what what a what a what a lovely gift from god <laughs> that that my husband and mm-hmm. i after 30 years are are sitting here adoring him together and and i can tell you of um, 3 decades ago i don't think that i would have believed that that could happen mm-hmm. it's, it's it's absolutely beautiful and i'm, and I'm happy you shared that it, um, I don't know that couples realize back to when I was saying earlier about how simple it can be. It wasn't complicated for you to get in the car and drive over there. It's, <laughs> it's a simple thing that you chose to do, but it's life changing. Mm-hmm. You're with our Lord right there, you know? And I think, again, we think we have to complicate all this and that Jesus isn't enough. Oh yeah. I could, we could go to adoration another time or, or you know, I, I have other things I have to do. Really? How's that working out for you? Is it better than being with Christ himself? And you just said it was beautiful. It was. It was, not it? And it puts into the center of our marriage this idea that we have the same aim, right? Like our aim is to be as closely allied to the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God as as we can possibly be, right? So we're sitting there in front of him and saying, we want to be close to you. We want to be you. We want to be truth and goodness and and beauty. And then we want to do that to That's each right. other. What a lovely way to set up your life as a married couple, to have that right. that moment of saying, okay, this is what we want together. And this is what we want for each mm-hmm. other. And it's very, very simple. 
And my wife and I, we prayed together every morning. And I wish I could say we did that for our 26 years of marriage, but it really started a little over 10 years ago. I had gotten very sick. And so it was out of fear, honestly, that we turned to God. And it became such a powerful gift for us that every every day we, we prayed together. And let's face it, some mornings, where, and we have to do it very early. It's our only convenient time for us. So we have, well, of course, you make coffee first, and, and then we, you know, sit down and pray. But um, and some days it's absolutely beautiful, and other days it feels kind of more like routine, um, just for whatever reason. Um, but I'll tell you, it it is something that I treasure, and I know she does, um, and it it keeps us focused because who knows what the day is gonna is gonna give us, what hand will be dealt. But we know the day was based in prayer, and, and I and I trust in that because I'm I am weak, and I I need to know that. I've surrendered my day to God uh, with my wife um, through the sacrament of our marriage. So, Damien, in this new video series, Into the Breach, the Mission of the Family, are people who will go online and they will watch the video and maybe share it with their, share it with their families at the moment. They could start, which I'm thinking now that I'm going to recommend to this this young woman I was talking to, start a sure. like a reading circle around it. How long are the episodes? Each episode is roughly 12 minutes long, maybe a little less, a little more, but it's about 12 minutes very easy uh, to get through. And then, as I said, the study guide is available online, and that'll give you more, it'll help you to go much deeper into each topic. Well, that sounds so wonderful. And I know that everything that the Knights do has always, it's always very well done. I'm sure the production value is very high. I wish that I had had well, the chance to, to watch, but I promise you that um, tonight, my husband and I are going to watch the first one. The first one is The Catholic Family in a Post-Christian World. Correct. And yes. uh, that sounds fabulous. What could be more important than the Catholic family in a post-Christian world? I shouldn't have a favorite, but that is my favorite episode, at least the, that particular topic, because you have to start with knowing that we don't live in a Christian culture. We just don't. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be apostolic. And I know you're, you're aware of this, and I'm sure your listeners are too, but um, we do have to acknowledge the world we're living in if you want to be intentional about your marriage. Uh, it's it's, it's post-Christian. Um, and in a sense, that's okay in the sense that, uh, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. Uh, we are. And so we're going to be very intentional about whom we hang out with our prayer life, frequenting the sacraments, uh, what we consume, all of it. Um, yeah, but th that's my, my personal favorite is that first one. because it really sets the tone for the rest. Well, I hope all our listeners will try that tonight after listening to this and tell us how they can find it, please. Again, it's uh, kofc.org forward slash mission of the family. Well, thank you so much, Damien O'Connor, for joining us today and, and for talking up marriage. What could be more important? Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hey, Gracie. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and um, bringing up this wonderful topic. This week published a piece called in Newsweek called Even Wealth and Fame Don't Save Women from Abortion Pressure. Tell us about that and who it references. Well, I'm guessing that I'm not the only 
person who noticed the detail. In fact, I know I'm not because there was probably about 200 articles um, written about the fact that Britney Spears, the pop icon whose memoir just came out, reveals that she had an abortion with Justin Timberlake um, with his baby when she was 19 or 20 years old. And it's I was both surprised and not surprised. I was surprised that, you know, she went this long and it never came out, but not surprised because she's such a broken seeming person. And she says um, in her book that she didn't want to do it and felt pushed into it because Justin Timberlake basically pushed her into it because he said he didn't want to be a father. And, you know, it's it's the the timeless story since the inception of legalized abortion is that it gives men the upper hand, the power to coerce women into having an abortion when they don't want to take responsibility. And it's so tragic. And this comes, you know, I I wrote about it because just a couple of months ago, the Charlotte Logier Institute came out with a a study that found that nearly 70% of women who had abortions didn't want to. And a good percentage of them felt say they actually felt coerced into doing it. And, you know, it's for a number of different reasons, whether it's social pressures, financial pressures, or quite literally, you know, uh, uh, some thugs, you know, driving them to the abortion and strong arming them and threatening them. But um, I just think this is all kind of a wake up call to the fact that if Britney Spears, who literally had her own plane, felt pushed into an abortion, you know, how much greater is the pressure on, you know, women with no means? And, you know, what can we do to address this. This morning, I gave a talk to a group of ninth grade girls at an all-girl high school, the one I went to, actually, a Catholic high school. And I brought up this this data point on Britney Spears, and you could see their their chins drop open, their mouths dropped open, and they were, they were wowed by the idea that someone as flourishing and successful and powerful as Britney Spears at 19 could have that pressure applied to her to force her into doing something she really didn't want to do. And it's it's a wonderful point that you that you bring up because when I talk to women especially about abortion, one of the myths I try to dispel is that abortion empowers women. And what I say to them is abortion actually empowers unscrupulous men. And yeah. that is who benefits in these scenarios, this Justin Timberlake scenario. He's an unscrupulous man who participated in an intimate relationship with somebody that he proposed he he professed to love, I suppose, at the time, who loved him, and then wouldn't accept the baby when the baby was already in existence. The, the baby already had arrived, basically, to, to the world, was just hidden, and wouldn't accept that responsibility. And then course, this poor girl, who I don't know as much about pop culture as you do, Ashley, and many of our listeners, <laughs> but I have the impression that she, as you said, is a, is a person who bears many scars and is very wounded from many different experiences in her life. Yeah, she she writes, if it had been left up to me alone, I never would have done it. And yet Justin was so sure that he didn't want to be a father. And she said, to this day, it's one of the most agonizing things I've ever experienced in my life. And it's just so sad because it just, it doesn't have to be that way. And I know that there's so many women. I, I recently, or I, I once saw a statistic and I can't remember the exact uh, percentage, but it was in the high 90s percentage of women who had had an abortion and said that if just one person said, you can do this, I will help you, they would not have gone through with it. 
And so I just think, you know, we were a year after the fall of Roe v. Wade. The landscape really is changing. And I think, you know, there's there's the legal front, which is one thing. But then there's also the social front, which is that, you know, the fall of Roe v. Wade does not change the fact that women still feel pushed into abortions that they don't want to have. And so, you know, the secondary challenge for pro-lifers is what can we do to both immediately and in the long term to change the culture so that women don't feel pushed into this. And in the article, I write about the attorney general of Mississippi, Lynn Fitch, who was, you know, one of the primary agents behind the Dobbs case and, you know, is this iconic pro-life woman who's, you know, both, she's fighting on both fronts. She's fighting on the legal front, but she also just launched this initiative in her state called MAMA, M-A-M-A. And it's basically like a a hub. Um, It's run by the state government that helps women get access to the kinds of resources and things that they need because women have different needs. You know, some women feel like they can't have the baby because they don't have a job. And so maybe they need help getting a job. You know, some women might just feel like they want to have the baby, but they have no network, no family, nothing. And so they need to be connected to a social network of women and moms who can help her. Um, And it's just a great, it's a great example of her state is doing this on the heels of, we also write about, and I should say that I I co-wrote this piece with our um, lovely colleague, Lee Sneed, and she's done a lot of writing about, you know, many of these wonderful maternal homes around the country. And we talk about both the state of Texas and the state of Tennessee, which each earmarked $100 million of their state funding. They tied their state laws regarding abortion to funding for initiatives like this for pregnancy centers. And that is that is the way that we need to be moving forward um, as pro-lifers is making sure that every step that we take to legally protect women and babies also goes hand in hand with steps taken to socially alleviate the pressures that make women feel pushed into abortion um, when they don't want to. I completely agree with you. And I and I don't see how we can, uh, unless we're talking out of both sides of our mouths, I don't see how we can promote a culture of life and also not be very vigilant about being there materially and spiritually and and emotionally for for women and men for families who are trying to welcome their children into the world and and are having terrible difficulty doing that and that's my experience in pregnancy care centers uh, the people who come to us they want to receive their children they long to receive their children and and everything is against them and as you say some of it's social emotional network family but yeah, there's a lot we can do to relieve that. What about taking, though, a step further back and saying, what is wrong with our culture that our cho- that children are being conceived right and left, not necessarily to the poor, but to women like Britney Spears and other women who, who have the means and, and are just not having the proper kinds of relationships that receive children? I mean, and she's sort of part of the problem, too, right? Like, she's she's part of that Hollywood entertainment culture that promotes, like, a, a hyper-sexualized, promiscuous lifestyle, which is necessarily going to create children whose fathers don't want to receive them. Yeah, it's true. You know, but the truth about Britney Spears that's so tragic is that she was actually exploited as a child herself. Like she was a child star whose parents exploited her for money. The culture was happy to exploit her, to turn her into a star, to turn her into this sex icon. I mean, the, her most famous song that 
like rocketed her to fame was her in this like Catholic schoolgirl outfit doing, you know, but like turned promiscuous doing this sexualized dance down a Catholic school hall. I feel like there was even like nuns tisking. And it's like, well, look how it ended up. You know, the church has these wisdoms because we understand she, the church understands that sexually promiscuous relationships lead to heartbreak. Uh, they lead, sadly, tragically in this country to, you know, tens of millions of dead babies too, but also to heartbreak. I mean, the story of Britney Spears, you know, she she ended up having to be put, I forget what the word is, there's a legal word for it, but she basically, she ironically, I mean, she was the most kind of iconic, wealthy successful pop star and then she wound up in the legal guardianship of her father talk about patriarchy because she went so mentally off the rails and i have no doubt that having an abortion at 19 years old had a lot to do with that um when she's here you know in her 40s writing about how it's to this day the most agonizing thing she's ever done in her life and so it's true i mean you're it's so good that you're giving those talks because women and girls need to hear that it is a complete lie that abortion empowers women it empowers men to take advantage of women sexually and then throw them and the child away when they're not ready to take responsibility yeah, and it's so sad the way a man walks away, or he just says, go do that, right? Or maybe he even drives her there, but the suffering is hers, right? She's the one who has to lie on that cold table and feel the terrible pain. And she's the one that has to carry with her for the rest of her life, like Britney Spears is doing, this sense of failure, that, that she failed to do the thing that women do, which is protect their children, right? And I, and, I can, and I say this having talked to many women who have suffered for decades after abortion, and that is what they tell me, that it's a terrible sense of failure. Like, I failed at my number one mission. How do I now look at the rest of my life and make sense of that? Like, what do my successes look like if that one time or two times or three times that I, that I was tried, I did not come through, right? And that's how they see it. But we, our culture has set them up for failure, right? And it has set them up as the ones who have to clean up the mess, right? Oh, here's a promiscuous society. Here's sex before marriage is wonderful. It's fabulous. It's pleasant. It's great. It's a pastime. And when things go wrong, when a baby comes into existence and the father doesn't want the baby or the family won't accept it, whatever the reasons are, it's the woman who has to go and sort of into the kitchen and clean up, right? And then come out and try to move forward. And that's very hard. No, it's so true. And, you know, I, again, I think it's kind of the secondary challenge of the pro-life movement in the post-Roe era is um, there's, there's the legal aspect, which is so, so important, but there's also the cultural aspect because there's, there's still a demand and that's a problem. Um, and when you consider the fact that, you know, more than, uh, two and three women who had abortions didn't want to. And, I, you know, I'm guessing if you pulled the other third, they wouldn't say like, yeah, it was great. I loved it. Um, but I mean, that that's wrong. And that's that should be very concerning, even to people who consider themselves pro-choice, because the reality is two and three women didn't feel like they had a choice. And Britney Spears is sort of the pop Hollywood face for that now and it's and it's so tragic yeah it's it's hard to think of her also as being 19 that's a very that's very young that's a very young girl and she says uh I think 
The pregnancy was a surprise, but for me, it wasn't a tragedy. I loved Justin so much, I always expected us to have a family together one day. This would just be much earlier than I'd anticipated. But Justin definitely wasn't happy about the pregnancy. He said we weren't ready to have a baby in our lives, that we were way too young. I mean, there's so much pathos in that. So thank you so much, Ashley. We will look for your piece in Newsweek. And it's called Even Wealth and Fame Don't Save Women from Abortion Pressure. Thanks for joining us, Ashley. Thanks, Crazy. I'd like to take a moment and share with you a piece that I wrote this past week and published in the National Catholic Register. It's very personal about my own experiences and my family's experiences and our feelings about what happened in Israel, the terrible troubles there. It's called Catholic and Forever the Son of a Jewish Mother. Here at my home, we are, like all the world, aghast at the horrific acts that the Hamas terrorists perpetrated upon Israeli civilians and proudly broadcast. The videos show the malevolence that man is capable of, making one almost ashamed to be a member of the species. As a Catholic, I find the situation to be especially painful because, like so many Catholics, I regard Jews with the affection expressed by Pope St. John Paul II in his memorable visit to a Rome synagogue in 1986, in which he said, You are our dearly beloved brothers, and in a certain way, it could be said that you are our elder brothers. But in our family, we go a little further. My husband's mother is Jewish, and although he is now a devout Catholic, he will always be, in some unalterable sense, a Jew. As a child, he was ignorant of the riches of his grandparents' faith. He was raised in an entirely secular home. His Judaism was a flavor and a spirit of strong family bonds, love of life, food as affection, inveterate matchmaking, and the wonderfully wry Jewish sense of humor that persists in the hardest of circumstances. Of the Torah or of the Hebrew language, he knew next to nothing. But at his grandfather's funeral, he tells me, the cantor's Baruch Atah Adonai struck a deep chord within him. After 10 years of marriage and Sunday church attendance, he converted to Catholicism. When his understandably disturbed mother asked him why, he said, I needed faith, and you and dad didn't give me one. And he was right. He needed faith like an arrow needs a target or a compass needs true north. Being ethical and upright were not enough, although it had taken him very far. With faith came life on a higher plane, in which accidents and troubles or just the grind of work and daily tensions could be seen in their proper context. He had a new supernatural vision that lit everything up with meaning in a way that was not only spiritually and psychologically enriching, but pointed him ever upward and outward. As his faith grew and matured, I saw holiness become a goal for him, far in the horizon, but still close enough to fill each new day with hope and purpose. I also watched my husband discover the faith of his grandfathers that was nestled inside Christianity like a hidden gift. He had found the truth of another remark of St. John Paul II made in the Rome Synagogue in 1986. The Jewish religion is not extrinsic to us, but is intrinsic to our own religion. It was a slow process, this coming to understand that Christ was not casually or trivially a Jew, as he might have been a Greek or a Roman. He learned that the birth of Christ to a humble Jewish maiden in a no-account village from which nothing good was ever expected to emanate was the culmination of thousands of years of preparation of a whole people. Over the millennia, God's people were lifted slowly by prophecy, revelation, and divine intervention from polytheistic, human-sacrificing, chaos-driven barbarism to a nation ordered around the enabling principles of the life-giving law. Honed by successive failures to live up to the covenant, dispersed and gathered back again and again, contrite and humbled and never spurned. My husband learned to love a Christ who said of the Jews that came before him, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And in his loving, to honor the chosen people who had for centuries worn the law like a jewel on their foreheads, and tied like a tourniquet around their arms. A people who had been faithful and remained faithful through scattering and slavery, pogrom and holocaust, 
and continue to live up to their divine mission to be a light to the nations. It was when we went on pilgrimage to Israel that it all came together for him. He was inexpressibly moved, of course, in the grotto in Bethlehem, where our Lord was said to have been born, and at the muddy Jordan River where the heavens opened on his baptism. But it was at the wailing wall where he put his forehead on an age-smooth stone and wept, shaken by the thought of the salvific love, working patiently for thousands of years through imperfect men just like him. During this current tragic episode of Jewish history, my husband and I have prayed the rosary together for the grief-stricken and the terrified. We are certain that Mary, Jewish mother that she is, will rush to the aid of her children. Stephen also felt drawn to visit the local synagogue. He went to offer his condolences and stayed to pray with a gentle-eyed rabbi who recognized him as a Jewish brother hurting for his people. He came home comforted and sure that when God takes up a people, he doesn't put them down again, but holds them always in the palm of his hand and shelters them forever under his wing. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. So we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When Jesus will speak to us about the single most important thing we need to do in life. If we do everything else but don't do this, we will not have lived life well. If we do this, however, but don't get to everything else, we still would have passed the test of life with flying colors. The consequential conversation happens after the scribes and Pharisees co-conspire to test Jesus by asking, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? We've heard Jesus' response so many times that we can think that the question was a softball, but it was really a 100-mile-an-hour slider. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament. To choose which of them was the greatest and most important was something that the scholars of the law had found challenging for centuries. Jesus' answer came from what God had inspired Moses to teach the Jewish people after God had rescued them from Pharaoh. From that point forward, faithful Jews have recited it every night. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus changes it a little. He uses heart, soul, and mind, stressing, it seems, to love God with their mind rather than use their mind to conspire to try to entrap him. He also uses the second person singular to stress that the particular scholar of the law who was asking him the question needed not just to know the answer, but to live the answer. Jesus makes clear in his response that loving God with all we are and have is not just the most crucial thing we need to do in life, but the way by which we most grow in the image of God who is love by opening up ourselves to his love. The command makes clear that it's not enough to love God with only some, half, most of, or even almost all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. God gives us himself. He gives us his grace precisely so that we can love him with as close as possible to 100% of all we are and have. He gives us his own love to make it possible for us to love him by this standard, to sacrifice for God with agape like he sacrificed for us. But then Jesus added something else, unsolicited, a twist the scholar of the law probably never expected. Jesus knew that if he stopped merely with the love of God, many would think that they were doing just fine because so many of us think we love God by the simple fact we acknowledge him, revere him, and have feelings of affection or gratitude toward him. Jesus wanted to give us a clear means by which we could evaluate whether we're truly loving God. Because to love him means to love what and whom he loves. And this was a particular issue for his interlocutor who thought he loved God while he was trying to trip up Jesus, the neighbor in front of him. So Jesus volunteered that there was a second commandment taken from the book of Leviticus that is similar to the greatest. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
The clear index of how we love God is how we love our neighbor loved by God made in his image. To say love your neighbor as yourself means to care for your neighbor the way you care for yourself. To do to your neighbor what you do to yourself. To put your mind, heart, soul, and strength into it just like you would the love of God. During the Last Supper, Jesus would make the connection between our love for God and neighbor even clearer. There, he said not, love me as I have loved you, but love one another as I have loved you. No longer would our love for ourselves be the standard for the love of our neighbor, but his love for us would be the standard. When he asked Simon Peter three times after the resurrection whether he loved him, and three times Simon replied he did, Jesus told him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, and tend my sheep. Peter's love for the Lord would be shown in the way that he loved all those whom God had entrusted to his care. In St. Luke's version of Jesus' response to a similar question by a scribe, when the lawyer to justify himself followed up by asking Jesus, who is my neighbor, the neighbor whom we're supposed to love is ourselves, Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, stressing that everyone is our neighbor, that we're called to cross the street to care for others in their need, to sacrifice our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and our money, time, and convenience to care for others like a loving mother cares for a sick child. St. John, who was present when Jesus spoke the words of this Sunday's Gospel, made the lesson clear for the members of the early church when he said, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. Whoever doesn't love a brother whom he has seen, can't love the God whom he hasn't seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The thing many miss about Jesus' response to the scribe's question is what Jesus says after giving us the twofold directive of love. By it, he makes love for God and for others very practical and gives us the prism by which to understand not only everything he reveals to us, but also how he calls us in practice to love in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. I found this sentence to be one of the most helpful phrases in the whole gospel when I teach moral theology to young and old alike. Jesus says, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all 613 commands that God has revealed in the Old Testament can be summed up in the love of God and the love of neighbor. This is so different from the way many look at the commandments. We can view them as restrictive and stifling rather than liberating. Some can claim, especially with regard to the 6th and ninth commandments concerning human sexuality and the 5th commandment on abortion, that they violate them precisely out of love. But we need to ask ourselves to do a quick gloss in the Decalogue. How can we ever claim to love God if we're worshiping idols or misusing his name? How can we claim to love him if we don't come to worship him on the day he calls his own? How can we love our parents if we dishonor them? How can we love others if we hate or kill them? How could we love our spouse if we're unfaithful? How can we truly love another if we use the person for our sexual pleasure and risk their eternal salvation? How can we love someone if we're stealing from them or lying to or about them? How could we really love someone if we're envious rather than happy about the blessings they have in their lives? The law of God is a law that trains us how to love. Every violation of his commandments is a violation of the love of God or love of neighbor. Therefore, whenever God tells us, thou shalt not, the prohibition is to help us preserve love. It's like a signpost keeping us on the pathway of true love. God, out of love, gave us each of the commandments. That's why Jesus, during the Last Supper, could tell us, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And later, I'm giving you these commandments so that you may love one another. I'd like to make two quick applications from Jesus' consequential conversation with us in this Sunday's Gospel. First is All Saints Day, which we'll celebrate this Wednesday. 
By our baptism, we're called to be not just good people, but saints. And sanctity is the perfection of love. The saints are those who strive with the help of God's grace to love God with all they've got and to love their neighbor with all they've got, concretely in deeds. In the twilight of life, St. John of the Cross once wrote, we will be judged by love on how we've prioritized God and how we've cared for him in the distressing disguise of someone hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, ill, imprisoned, or otherwise in need. St. Paul wrote that even if we have faith to move mountains or be martyred, but don't have love, we're just making noise. As we focus on God's will for us, our sanctification this week, it's time to make real resolutions to prioritize the love of God with all our heart and prayer in the sacraments, with all our mind and sacred study, with all our soul by a good confession, with all our strength by making sacrifices for him. It's a time likewise to commit ourselves to loving our neighbor the way God loves us, starting with the most proximate neighbors, our family members. The second application is to, synod, is to the Synod on Synodality, the first phase of which is concluding in the Vatican this Sunday. The ultimate criterion by which to evaluate the Synod is how it will help those in the Church to learn to love God and love neighbor in accordance with the truth about God, our neighbor, and ourselves. Listening, accompanying, walking with others in a synodal way cannot be left simply as an exercise in community building, but must be directed toward genuine love for God and others as Christ loves. Some synod delegates have argued in favor of changing church teaching and practice with regard to the sacrament of holy orders or worthiness for holy communion or sexual morality. But it's hard to see how any of their proposals would be consistent with loving God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor. If we would look the other way, if our neighbor is living in a diametrically opposed way to the gospel. Jesus shows us real love by dying to take away our sins. We wouldn't be loving others as he has loved us if instead of helping others to repent and believe, we essentially blessed and enabled their sins. The fierce twofold love to which God calls us this Sunday is the goal of the church and therefore must be the goal of the synod. As the first phase of the synod concludes, we pray that this will be its fruits. As we prepare for Sunday Mass, let's ask God for the grace to love him in the Eucharist with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and to help us through communion with him to learn how to love our neighbor by that same Eucharistic standard. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 